All right, well, today is Father's Day, and I, I want to talk to you guys, at least at the beginning of the message, just more or less as a dad or really as a parent, because what I'm going to say doesn't just apply to dads, it applies to moms, it applies to parents of all kinds. And I want to begin by saying to you that I, I think that the scariest and most vulnerable thing that you can do in life is probably to have a child. Seriously, like having a child is a really big thing. And I think that we all sort of understand that intuitively, intellectually. I mean, nobody would argue with that as a premise, but I don't know that you really feel the weight of it until you actually have a child. I I remember when Morgan was born almost 19 years ago now, we took her home from the hospital. And here's what that means. We took her out of the care of people who actually knew what they were doing, okay? And we took her home, and we didn't actually know what we were doing. Now, we had Beth's mom, so that was a big help, but nevertheless, it was pretty intimidating. And I walked around for like three weeks in a total daze, and not just because I was sleep-deprived, but because I realized if we don't clothe this kid, she goes naked. If we don't feed this kid, she dies. Big responsibility, and it's bigger than that. It's not just, you know, feeding them and clothing them and bathing them and changing their diapers and doing all of those kinds of things. No, no, no. What else do you do as a parent? You form them. You shape them. You mold them emotionally, spiritually. And here's the deal. That happens without you even trying. I mean, you have to feed them, you have to change their diaper at some point, you know? I mean, you've got to put them to bed and wake them up and teach them all kinds of things and how to care for them, you know? Those things you have to do intentionally. These other things you ought to do intentionally, but even if you don't, they're going to happen anyway. And everyone here knows this. If you haven't lived long, or life very long yet, let me just tell you, you don't have to live too long before you realize that you become your dad or you become your mom. It just, it happens, And if you had really great parents like me, look, that's a great advantage in life. But if you didn't, not so much. Not so much. And even if you had really great parents, you didn't have perfect parents. So there's always that thing that you swore that you would never say that now you say. Right? And as it's coming out of your mouth, you can see the face of your father or of your mother. And it's like, good grief, I don't want to say this, but here it comes. And out it goes. There are always things that you swore you'd never do, and now you do it all the time. Attitudes you swore you'd never have that you exhibit, even though you don't want to, and on and on and on it goes. You become your parents. And here's the deal. Your kids will one day say those things. Your kids will one day do those things. Your kids will one day exhibit those behaviors unless you break the cycle. I remember a number of years ago now, driving somewhere with my uh, youngest child, our boy who was three years old at the time. He's going to be 11 in October, so it was a while ago. And I remember where we were going, but it was just the two of us, and we were in a hurry to get there. And I, I know that we were in a hurry to get there because here's the thing. I'm always in a hurry to get there. I just, I am. I, I'm, I can be on vacation, and I'm in a hurry to get wherever it is that I'm going. I walk fast, I talk fast, I drive fast. That's the deal. I race through life. And for me, that's what driving is. It's not a journey. We're not going to pull over and look at the flowers. You know, this isn't some enjoyable experience that we're all going to have together. No, no, no. It's a race to get from point A to point B. And I'm sorry. I love you. But if you're on the road, you're in my way. That's the way I look at it. 
So we're driving, I mean, racing somewhere. He's in the back seat in his little car seat, three-year-old, and we pull up to the stoplight at, at Bayview and Sunrise, and I'm waiting in the right-hand lane to make a right turn onto Sunrise, and there's somebody in front of me, you know, and we're waiting for like three seconds, you know, and it feels like an eternity to me. And during those three seconds, they had 1,682.5 opportunities to make the right turn and to get out of my way, right? So I'm starting to get agitated. And right when I'm about to say it, my three-year-old son, who's been taking it all in from the back seat, shouts, come on, buddy. (laughs) True story. Now, where did he get that? You know, it's funny. I didn't have to teach him to do it. I didn't have to say, you know what, son? Life's a race. And so you're going to have to learn to walk fast. and You're going to have to learn to talk fast. and You're going to have to learn to drive fast. You're going to pay for your own tickets. But that's the deal, you know. And everybody on the road, I know that we're supposed to love people in the name of Jesus. And, but they're in your way. They're impediments. They're obstacles. They're, come on, buddy. They're... Not a lot of real healthy things in that. I didn't have to learn, or I didn't have to sit down with him and, you know, practice. Now I want you to shout, come on, buddy. He just did it. He caught it. Just like I caught it. Now where do you think I got it? Now look, here's the deal. My dad listens to all of these sermons online. So I'm not going to tell you where it came from, but we'll just say the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Being a parent's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's full of all kinds of pressures. It's full, for example, of the pressure to provide for your children. And by that, I don't mean food and water and basic necessities of life. What what I mean by that is to provide pretty much everything that everyone in your social circle is also providing for their children because, you know, we assume that that's what it means to be a good parent. And look, here's the deal. We really want to be good parents. We really do. And so we feel that pressure to provide, and we feel the pressure as well, I think, of being there for our children. And what I mean by that is this. I mean of being at every single one of their activities. And I'm not against being at our children's activities. I think that's a noble goal. But I am oftentimes against how many activities we allow, and that's the key word, our children to be in. And I say that we allow them to do this because we, not they, are the parents. We, not they, are the boss. And here's what happens if we're not careful. We forget that and begin to function otherwise. And so all of a sudden, the desires of this little person begin to govern over what we do as a family and how we live. The the passions of this little person are governing what we do and how we live, you know. The temper tantrums of this little person, which are painful and embarrassing, begin to govern over what we do and how we live. And before long, they are, in fact, the boss. In fact, we even kid like this. And every parent has said this. Well, you know, he's the boss. Look, I know you're kidding when you say that, okay? But you're also kidding for a reason, because again, it feels that way sometimes. And I just want to say, but he's four. He picks his nose at the dinner table. He goes streaking through the house when, you know, family is there because he thinks it's funny. And it is funny, parenthetically. But it's not funny when he's ruling the roost. Then it's tragic. Then it's chaos. And so we feel the pressure of being there for our kids, which again means being in all of the different activities that we allow because we're the boss. 
our kids to be in. And I'm not against that. But I do wonder sometimes about how many activities we allow our kids to be in. And here's why we allow them to do it all. Because we desperately want to be good parents. So it comes from a great motivation, does it not? We really do. And our culture then comes to us and says, all right, you want to be a good parent? Well, then here's what that looks like. And you see it everywhere. It's what it looks like in almost everybody's family. Here's what it looks like. Tom, you have three kids, right? You need to have all three of your kids involved in 89 different activities all at the same time. And you and your wife and, you know, whatever kid isn't involved in the activity at the particular moment need to make it to every game, every rehearsal, every, you know, practice, every recital, every dance, everything, every event possible. You've got to be at it all. And the irony is that under the guise of being there for our kids, we become deprived by our own hand of being able to actually be there for our kids in ways that actually matter. We can't even all get around the dinner table half the time. What, like once or twice a week? And even then, it's hurry up, it's hurry up, we've got to get to practice, we've got to get to the play, we've got to get to the, to the what? And believe me, I know all about it. And instead of having the space necessary and the time necessary to have deep and meaningful conversations with our children, the most deep and meaningful conversations that we are capable of having with our kids are the ones that get crammed into some 10-minute frantic car ride from one practice to the next and usually end with the words, we're going to have to finish this conversation later because you're 10 minutes late for gymnastics. Like gymnastics, in the end actually matters. I mean, like, are you raising the next Olympic gold champion in, in gymnastics? And even if you are, does it matter? And you're like, yeah, but Tom, do you know how much money I spend on gymnastics? Do you know how costly it is to every one of us to live a life that is so full of activity and chaos that we cannot meaningfully pour our hearts, our lives, our wisdom, our faith into our kids? Gymnastics is cheap. Gymnastics is nothing. And instead of living beautiful lives that reflect a wisdom that brings peace and order to our families, we and we all do it, reflect lives that are in almost chaos and disorder, at least borderline, most of the time, and then we raise our kids to grow up and do exactly the same thing because, again, that's how it works, right? Come on, buddy. It's the way it works. And then, of course, that we have the pressure as parents of developing our children spiritually, and truth be known, when we're running all over the place, we don't have the time to develop ourselves spiritually, and you can't fill up an empty you know, car with a gas can that doesn't have any gas in it itself. And so it's a big problem. And you say, all right, well, you know, Tom, what do we do? Uh, Because I, at least, am starting to feel like I did after Morgan was born. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. And I honestly cannot answer that question for you, at least with the kind of specificity that's going to satisfy all of the particulars of your particular situation. But what I can do is give you one guiding principle that you as the fathers and heads of your homes can sit down with your wives as your life partner in this mission called life and marriage and parenting and say, all right, look, we got this guiding principle, this big idea. Let's evaluate what we're doing against it. And let's make the decisions necessary to accomplish the goal. 
So what's the goal? What's the big idea? It is that the goal of parenting is the gift of faith. It's not to raise the next Einstein. It's not to raise the next Mozart. It's not to raise the next really great athlete. It is to raise the next really great follower of Jesus. And everything that we say and everything that we do and every activity that we say yes to and every activity that we say no to needs to be done in such a way as to promote that goal or at least not to do battle against it. Needs to give way to it. Because God is more important than absolutely anything or than absolutely anyone. And I want you to see that idea today in the life of a man named Abraham, who, by the way, is referred to in the Bible as the father of those who have this gift of faith. And I want to pick up a story in Genesis chapter 22. Beginning in verse 1, it's toward the end of his life. And Moses, who gives us this story, says this. He says that after these things, which, by the way, includes the birth of Abraham's son, whose name is Isaac. After these things, including Isaac's birth, God tested Abraham, which is a very curious statement. You ought to stop when you read something like that and think, now, why does God need to do that? I understand why I, as a teacher, might need to do that, because teachers give tests to find out whether their students have been studying, have been listening, have been taking notes, have been properly assimilating all of the information and can reproduce it in a way that is helpful. You see, the teachers learn about their students from taking or giving exams. Well, God knows everything. He doesn't need to give an exam to find anything out. So why does he give Abraham a test? So that I can learn something. So that you can learn something. So that we can see today that God is more important than anything more than anyone. Moses writes, after these things, including the birth of Isaac, God tested Abraham and he, and he said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, and here comes a test. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and then sacrifice his great desire to be involved in three different sports because it is adding chaos to your life and it is presenting you from being able to accomplish the goal of parenting, which is to give your son the gift of faith. No. That's a much lesser sacrifice. He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, it's very particular, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, and God doesn't need to give Abraham instructions on what that means. Apparently, he already knows. And here's what it means. It means taking a lamb, cutting its throat, bleeding it out, and consuming its body with flame. And here's the thing. If you've never studied through the life of Abraham, you know, there's like nothing in the life of Abraham that prepares you for this moment. You do not see this coming. In fact, everything that happens in the life of Abraham makes this all the more shocking. And so when you you get to this particular moment in in, in the story, it's like, it's so startling. It's so stunning. It's frankly, it's so, it's so horrific and it's so unexpected. You can't, you've got no category for this. You can't imagine this, that you wish at least that you could jump into the pages of the Bible and get between God and Abraham and talk to the Lord and give him a little lecture like, no, you can't do this. You, You can't do this to any father and son. You certainly cannot do this to Abraham and this son. Why? Well, because in the story you learn that Abraham's waited his whole life for this son. 
He's a hundred years old when this child is born. And his wife, who has been barren all of their marriage, long marriage, that too is a Father's Day issue as an aside. And who not only has been barren, but now has passed menopause. Okay, so it's game over, right? I mean, any flicker of hope that they had extinguished is 90 when this child is born. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that he was the product of a supernatural birth. A supernatural birth which teaches what lesson? That God brings life out of death. For he brought forth a living child from a doubly dead womb, did he not? So he's the product of a supernatural birth. By the way, if you also know the story, his birth is announced in advance by angels. That's kind of (laughs) cool. Sort of unique. Might want to hang on to that. And not only that, he's the son of promise, which is kind of a big deal, because basically God comes to Abraham and says, listen, I'm going to give you a son. No, 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 I know that your, your wife is barren, I get that. No, 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 I realize that she's past menopause. No, 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 no problem. But he is the son of promise, this son. He's going to be miraculously born. He's going to give evidence of the fact that I bring life out of death, okay? I'm announcing in advance by some angels. That's pretty cool. It ought to catch your attention. And, and here's the deal. Through this boy, many generations later, will one day come one who is the true Isaac and who will give his life as the sacrifice for the sins of all who put their faith in him. And so delighted are these parents and this boy. And you can imagine their delight. They name him Isaac. And what does that mean? It means laughter. It means laughter. And yet after these things, we read God tested Abraham not to find something out about Abraham. God already knows what's going to happen so that we can find something out through Abraham. He tested him and he said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah where Jerusalem will later be built. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And what does Abraham do? Well, if you know the story, he gets up early the next day. I mean, I'm guessing he didn't sleep anyway, so. But it's a sign of his obedience. It's the immediacy with which he just goes after this thing. He doesn't leave. He doesn't think God's lost his mind or he just gets up. And he sets about to obey it. He gets up and he chops the wood for the sacrifice. Now think about that. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't know exactly what mountain God's going to point out when he gets to this land of Moriah. And he doesn't know if there's going to be any wood wherever it is that God wants him to do this sacrifice. And he is not going to be denied the opportunity to do it. He is going to obey God. And he is so diligent about it that he cuts the wood and brings it along. His son is as good as dead to him the moment God speaks. He cuts the wood himself. He takes the knife, he brings the fire, he brings his son, who's like 15 or 16, and has had no children at this point. So how's the Messiah going to come through this kid if he's gone? And with a couple of servants and a donkey, they walk and they travel for three days. You see how long the son is as good as dead to him? Three days. And they get all the way to where Jerusalem would later be built, this land of Moriah. And God says, all right, there's your mountain. 
And Abraham walks over to the bushes to vomit. And the muffled sobs that he's been uttering for three straight days get a little bit louder. And he says to his servants, I want you guys to stay here with the donkey because he doesn't want the servants to intervene. They will think he's lost his mind, wouldn't you? I want you guys to stay here with the donkey because here's what we're going to do. We, meaning the boy and I, are going to go up on that mountain and we're going to worship. And then we, meaning the boy and I, are going to come back, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you and then like him, but not like he is now. That's not what he means. Just like you see us now, you will see us again is what he's saying. Why is he saying that? Because he knows that God is a God who brings life out of death. And God has made these promises through this boy that at this point in history cannot possibly be accomplished unless this boy, having been sacrificed, is then raised from the dead and yet lives. So in faith in the resurrection... Abraham and Isaac begin to ascend the hill, but not until Abraham first takes the wood and puts it on the shoulders of his son. The son will carry the wood to the place of sacrifice. And off they go. Isaac with the wood, Abraham with the fire and the knife, weeping. And as they're walking, Isaac asks the obvious question. It's like, Dad, you know, you've been so diligent in the preparations of all of this. But there is something missing. Um, Where's the lamb? What does Abraham say? It's prophetic. He says, the Lord will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. My son and on they walk. Up the hill they go. Till they get to the top of the hill, and then what happens? Well, they make their altar, and then what happens? Well, Abraham shares with Isaac who the sacrifice is going to be. And then Isaac, because he's 15, runs off, and Abraham, because he's really old, can't catch him, and then that's the end of the story. No, that's not the way that it works out. Then Isaac the son, in faith in the resurrection, it's the faith of his father, willingly lays himself down on that wood. And God, if you know the story, spares Isaac at the last second, okay? So, all right. But what does that tell you about Abraham as a father? I think it tells you that for all the things that Abraham might not have done, might not have said, might not have allowed his children or his son, in this case, to be involved in or not involved in, Abraham... Got the goal, man. Abraham accomplished the purpose of parenting, which ultimately is not to raise the next Einstein, Mozart, or the next really great athlete. It's to raise the next really great follower of Christ. And my, how his boy's life reflects the life of Christ. Have you ever considered that? Think about the story of Jesus and Isaac. Who is Christ if not the true Isaac? Born of a supernatural birth announced in advance by angels. Check, check. The son of promise, like the one, entered into the world to do what? To live the life we haven't. And then to take upon himself our sin 
and to lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is how his ministry is announced. He's the answer to Isaac's question, where's the Lamb? He lays his life down, guys, but not until the wood upon which he will be laid on is placed on his shoulders and he carries it towards the place of sacrifice. And he does it, unlike Isaac, knowing he is the lamb and that no one will stay his father's hand. And in fact, that's what happens. As he willingly gives his life as the perfect sacrifice for imperfect people, for broken people, for people to come to know that, you know, that God is all we need. It's a pretty amazing story. He purchases us with His blood so that we can then go off and live any way we want, right? Raise the next Einstein. I'm not against raising the next Einstein, by the way. That would be awesome. But so that we can learn to live for Him and to teach our kids to do the same. The goal of parenting is the gift of faith. It is to raise the next really great follower of Jesus. That's the principle. This past Tuesday, because I was looking for ideas, I sent an email out to a number of guys here in the congregation, and I said, you know, okay, tell me some of the burdens that you experience, some of the pressures you feel as a Christian father. And I got all kinds of really awesome and insightful and, frankly, honest replies um, that I appreciate and really kind of helped me think through this message. But there's one I want to read to you because I think it sums it up. I think this is this is kind of it. This one dad writes this. He says, I have really only ever worried about one thing for my kids. And I know his kids, by the way. They've been very active and very involved. They're incredibly bright. And But he says, I've really only ever worried about one thing for my kids. And here it is, that I would lead them to a genuine living faith in the living God. I've honestly always believed that everything else would work itself out. I read that and thought, that's it. That's what we as fathers, as parents, need to strive for. Even if that means slowing down in a culture that says speed up. Even if that means doing less in a culture that says do more. And even if that means sitting down and making some difficult decisions about what we are involved in and what we're not involved in and being the boss, because you're wiser than your children. You are. And they need for you to use that wisdom. It's the best thing you can do for them because the goal of parenting is the gift of faith. So here's my challenge to you as dads today. You're to lead your home. Sit down with your wife and say, all right, let's figure this thing out. How do we live in such a way as to accomplish that? Because in the end, that's what matters. All right? Okay, if you're a dad, I'd like you to just stand, and I'm going to close in prayer by praying for you guys. Or at least close the message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men. Lord, I thank you for the children that you have given each of us the privilege of overseeing. 
God, indeed, we are vulnerable, and indeed, it is a scary venture. Um, and Lord, many times we just uh, we fail. I pray, God, that you would forgive us. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and with your wisdom. Lord, with your power, with your strength, God, with your perspective on everything, but especially this day on this, that we might be the instruments in your hands that our children might come to discover that you indeed are all that they need because we have shown them that in our own lives. Let us teach it intentionally and let it be caught by the way that we live. God, bless these guys. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.